0: Am I on? You're on. All right. It's kind of harder to hear up here. So, well, good morning. Uh, as, as Rich said, my name's Matt Brocker. i um, been around here since, man, it's 1998 uh, when I gave my life to, to Christ, uh, a little while ago, uh, just after high school. Um, Jeff asked me, you know, I've known about this for a couple months now asked me to come up and preach, and I was like, okay, well, you know, somewhere along the line, he's going to tell me what to preach on. He's going to give me a topic, a, a passage of scripture or something, and uh, he didn't, and, and, I, <laughs> and so I, I went in his office a few weeks ago, and I said, hey man, come up with any ideas on, on <laughs> what, what we're going to talk about, and, and he's like, you know, I just talked to Cale about that, and I just told him to, you know, just pick something that, that speaks to your heart, and you know, that, that, that mean, that's really meaningful to you. So I was like, oh, that's incredibly not helpful. Thank, <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, th- this is a big book uh, that, that we follow. And so it was tough for me to, to kind of figure out where to start. Uh, but, I, but I obviously found something. And if you take out your notes, you'll see that it's Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. If you want to turn there. Before I get into that, uh, give you a little bit more background on who I am, how I got to maybe this, this point in my life, um, so you understand a little bit more about me. A, a lot of you know already, a lot of you are, are good friends, and uh, would know some of these details about me. My, my story uh, started, like I said, obviously before 1998, but in 1998, I had a friend, his uh, name was Ryan Garbrandt, he kept inviting me to church, and inviting me to church, over and over and over again, and I was like, man, I I've got a church, I don't go, but I've got a church, you know, don't, <laughs> quit bugging me, right, so, so finally I came, and shortly after that, you know, God did such amazing things in my life, and, and through the teaching, that, that I couldn't help but surrender my life to, to him and his word, and uh, give him the lordship of my life. Before that, let's go back a few years, I grew up in a home with no dad, okay, not sob story, just the way it was. My mom was the authority in the house. You know, she had that look, you know, is right, mom? <laughs> Sorry, mom. Uh, she had that look that, man, when she had that on her face, she just didn't mess with mom, right? She, she was serious, okay? Mom was the authority. Mom was everything that we had. Mom was the, the breadwinner, right? She worked two and three jobs. She supported us. She did what she had to do to take care of us. Mom was Mom and dad at the same time. But the problem with that is God didn't create moms to be everything, right? Didn't create moms to be the final authority in the house. Didn't create moms to be dad. And so I grew up without a man in my life to teach me how to be a man, to teach me how to be bold and confident and strong, and all of those things that you would think, you know, a dad, that's, that's what a dad's going to pass on to his son. I didn't have those things. Uh, not feeling sorry for myself honestly, just the story, right? So then I come here, I give my life to Christ, and God starts putting men in my life, one after another after another, who are incredible examples, teaching me how to be a man, teaching me how to follow God, how to open his word, and see what God has to say for me, and just take steps and follow it. God put all these men in my life, and it, and it started to establish my walk with Christ. And it was an incredible time of growth for me. I was able to, to grow leaps and bounds, in just, just my maturity as a young man, I was 22 at the time, 21, I was growing up fast. And then a strange thing started happening. Those men that were in my life started disappearing, so to speak. You know, Some of them were here, some of them were my age. Some of them came here to be trained to be sent out other places. And those guys held me accountable. Those guys challenged me. And they got opportunities to go, and they went. And and that's awesome. That's incredible. That's exactly what they should have done. Uh, One of those men uh, has passed away. He's no longer with us. We're jealous of where he's at. We miss him dearly. Others, you know, we went through a time of transition here at the church in leadership and and others we'll just say they didn't survive the transition, we'll put it that way. Whatever reason, they're not here. I'm not judging them, I'm not saying they did wrong. They're just not here. And a lot of those guys were guys that I looked up to. And when they left, and when others went to where God was challenging them to go, I had to figure out who was I gonna be. I had to figure out, okay, now all of these guys that I was following they're not here to follow anymore. So what do I do? Who, who do I follow? How do I make decisions? You know, I would, I would bounce my ideas and, and things off of these guys, and they're not here anymore. So what I had to do is make a decision. A- am I going to follow Christ on my own? Am I going to be one of those guys that leads other guys? I hope so someday, but, man, I'm only, I'm only like 24 at this time. I'm just a kid, right, to some of you. Some of you still think I'm a kid, and I appreciate that. <laughs> so I, I had to start making decisions on my own. I had to start following God on my own, and it was not an overnight process. It was not an instantaneous, man, that guy is somebody we want to follow. This, this was a period of time that I struggled. Our church was going through a transition. My wife and I, we taught up in the Adventure Zone, first, second, and third grade children, For nine and a half years, and we were kind of just up there hiding, in in a way. You know, I was up there trying to figure all this stuff out, and there was times when I wasn't reading my Bible unless I was teaching that week. I was only praying when, you know, there was something I wanted or didn't want. I didn't want to be sick, or you know, my walk with Christ was not strong for a long time, and I struggled. I had a hard time when when the influences that I followed so closely went other places. And I found myself in a place just like a guy in this story in uh, Luke chapter 7. I found myself to be, I guess the best way to describe it would be sick. I was an unhealthy Christian. I was a Christian that looked like he had everything going on perfect on the outside, but I was struggling on the inside, and, and I didn't want anybody to know it. I was like the, you know, the duck that's paddling upstream. He looks smooth. He's cool. He's under control. But under the surface, man, he's going to town and fighting as hard as he can. That was me. Uh, unless maybe you knew me better. And yeah, yeah, we knew you were clueless. We knew you were struggling. <laughs> that's okay. But at least I thought I had you all fooled. All right, so back, this brings us to Luke. Why don't you open your Bibles, if you haven't already. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. We'll read through here, and then we'll get started. Excuse me. All right, chapter 7, verse 1. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a centurion servant, a certain centurion servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was not now not far from the house, The centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority. Having under me soldiers, I say unto one, Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. Let's, let's bow our heads for a prayer real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this story, uh, the meaning it has in my life. Thank you for your word. Your guidance, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. I pray that you would change hearts. I pray that we would see you as you are. We love you. Amen. All right. So first of all, as we get into this story, we've got to set a little bit of context. We've got to figure out who's in the story, what's going on, and then we'll better understand the details later on. So first of all, we'll go through the, the we call them characters, but these are historical figures, so this is not a cartoon, right? These are, these are real people. These are real events. This really happened. All right, so we'll start with Jesus. Verse one again. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. All right, so Jesus, if you go back in chapter six, you see that he's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's preaching to the people, he's teaching, he's healing people, and then he makes his way into the synagogue or into Capernaum, and then then shortly after that would would go into the, the synagogue. Here we can see on the map, Capernaum is up on the upper left side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a port city. It's right against the sea. So he, he finishes his teaching by the seashore, and then he enters into the city. This isn't the first time he's been to Capernaum. Mark chapter 1 shows us, in verse 21, it says, And they went, to, went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he, this is about, uh, talking about Jesus, he entered into the synagogue and taught. This was an earlier visit to Capernaum. Uh, Another account of this is in Luke chapter 4, verse 31 says, And came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. See, he'd been here before. His word was with power. In Luke chapter 4, verse 23, And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician... Heal thyself, whatsoever we have done, we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. Luke is one of the Gospels that we go to to figure out what order things happened in. Luke is chronological. Everything that happened in Luke is, is, chronologized, or is chronicled for us in order. So we know that back what happened in chapter 4 was a previous visit of Jesus' to Capernaum. And what he was doing there, it says, again, in verse 23, it says, They will say unto him, Heal thyself, whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. Okay, so what was going on each time he visited Capernaum? He would go to the synagogue, he would preach with power, he would heal people, he cast out demons, okay? So they were seeing some amazing things go on every time he went to Capernaum. All right, the second person we want to look at is the centurion's sick servant. Look again in verse 2 of chapter 7 of Luke. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. We don't have a whole lot of details on this guy. If you look in Matthew, there's another account, chapter 8. If you look there, you'll see that it says he has a palsy. He's sick of the palsy. all right, And, and he's grievously tormented. So this guy's really sick. It says he's, he's about to die here. This is kind of where my story comes in. This was me. I'm kind of like this, this sick servant. I, I'm a servant of God, but I'm sick because my relationship with him is, is phony. And it's based on surface level, keeping people thinking that everything's under control and great, when it wasn't. <clears throat> All right, so... As a Christian, I was ill. That's, that's the best way I could describe that. So let's keep that in mind. As we go through this story, think about this sick man like a sick Christian. A Christian who should have a close relationship, a healthy relationship with Christ, but doesn't. The next guys we need to look at is, is the elders of the Jews. Now my mom always taught me to respect my elders. She told me when I didn't that my mouth was going to get me in trouble all that good stuff in high school when I was, had a bad attitude. <clears throat> These elders of the Jews, are, they're not just old people, right? It's not just, we, we went to Disney on Ice the other night, and I was so frustrated because there was an old guy in front of me, and he wouldn't drive fast enough, and he kept letting other people in front of me, and I respected my elders by not yelling at, at him, right? Like, now this, is, this is different, Respect this. This Jewish culture revered their elders. If it was just an old man, this was a man who was old men. These were old men that were highly respected. Let's look and see what what that title elder actually is. Matthew sixteen says in verse twenty one: From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, all right, and, and it goes on. Notice who he's hanging out with, these, these elders are hanging out with. They're hanging out with the chief priests and the scribes. Matthew 26, verse 59 says, now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. Again, they're with the chief priests and all the council. These guys have influence over the decisions of the nation of Israel, these elders. They're not just old guys. They're not disrespected. They're feared and revered in this culture. These are respected men. All right, when we looked at Mark one twenty one, we saw that Jesus was in the synagogue. A few verses later in Mark one twenty eight, it says, And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. All right, Galilee was the surrounding area around the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus' fame is spreading throughout all of that region. <coughs> Excuse me. He's becoming well-known for all of the things he's doing and, and, again, for his preaching with power. So you can imagine, he's, he's been to Capernaum before. He went to the synagogue and preached there. Who hangs out at the, the synagogue? The elders, the chief priests, okay? The elders, if you look again, let's read back in. Let's start in uh, verse 3. In chapter 7, when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews. This is the centurion sending the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. All right, so these same same elders are probably the ones that, that heard Jesus the first time. That's where they hung out. They hung out in the synagogue. I'm not saying for sure that these are the same exact guys, but somebody told somebody, and the centurion found out because Jesus' fame is spreading everywhere. And when the centurion finds out that he's back the second time, he sends the elders back to the synagogue or back to wherever Jesus is to get him to come and heal his servant. All right, so we kind of just kind of have to build, you know, who's who's doing what and where, what direction they're going. All right, the last guy we need to look at is the centurion, and I have a picture, I think. We have a picture of a centurion for you. All right. If, if I think of a centurion, that's, that's what I picture. You know, the cool mohawk helmet and, uh, you know, sword. All right. This guy, this shows a centurion in, in battle. Um, this was from the research that I did. The history tells us that the centurion fought right alongside the soldiers he was in charge of. So that's pretty cool. And then the uh, last one, that one was just cool. I just like that picture. So, um, but yeah, I mean, he's a battle-hardened, battle-ready, strong, manly man, right? These, this is what you think of when you think of a centurion, Alright, So, history tells us also that Rome, centurion was a Roman soldier. Rome broke their armies up into things called legions, and a legion consisted of six thousand or so soldiers. So, you've got six thousand soldiers. And they broke the legions up into something called centuria, or centuries. A century is 100. To us, a century is 100 years. That's what we use it for. So they broke it up into 60 segments of 100. Each one of these segments had a centurion in charge of it. So a centurion is a man who leads 100 other soldiers. He leads them by example, as we saw in the second picture, because he fought on the front lines with his soldiers. All right. So he's, he's a man's man. He's fearless, I would assume, or if he's afraid, he, he goes in and fights anyway. And the way that, that Rome broke this up was there were different ranks for all of the centurions. The lowest of the low would be the brand new centurion with the brand new army, right? First day on the job, you get the new troops, all right? Their rank was matched by the rank of the soldiers that they had underneath of them. The highest ranking was, was called a primus pilus or a primus Pilas. and he would be over the elite soldiers, the best of the best, who've proven themselves time and time again valiant in war and trustworthy, the strongest of the strong, right? So that's, that's the job you want. You want to be going to war with the best of the best beside you. I kind of picture like the new guy on the job, you know, he's, he's heading to battle. I got the hundred new soldiers. We go in, Oh my goodness, what in the world did I get myself into? And then, you know, the day later, you know, four centurions above him die. So I immediately have moved up the ranks, right? I, I don't know how that worked, but, but I can't imagine, you know, what you, you, you want to build, you know, work your way up this, this system so that you have the best soldiers supporting you. All right, so the scripture doesn't tell us his specific rank. It doesn't tell us, you know, he was Primus Pilus or, you know, Optimus Prime or whatever, whatever his name was. <laughs> you know, it doesn't tell us what his specific rank was. He could have been the lowest one. He could have been brand new. Regardless, he was in charge of, or he was higher ranking than at least 5,000 plus other soldiers within the army. So he's up there, right? You don't, you don't become a centurion you know, because your uncle knows somebody who knows somebody, you know, it's just not a political office, unless they want to get rid of you, maybe. You know, you don't get to be a high-ranking centurion by somebody just putting you there. You have to prove yourself. So when we look at this specific centurion, we know if he's the lowest of the low, he's still impressively ranked. He still has to be a strong soldier, a strong leader, he bosses the Jewish leaders around, right? He tells them to go to Jesus, and they go. He, he's built a synagogue. He has influence over this area as far as what's going on, you know, in, in the, the city. So regardless of where he falls in that system, he's, he's an impressively ranked individual. And this is, this is where we start in point one. We measure this man as impressive. We measure him as the best of the best, the elite. Right? So how do you measure up against others? How do you measure yourself? Well, in point A, we measure the centurion the same way the Jews did, right? We measure him according to what he's done, according to who he is compared to other people. We look at him, we say, again, we say he's a strong leader, we say he's courageous, he's confident. He's beloved. He cares about this servant of his when I would assume a servant wouldn't hold that much importance to a centurion who has so much authority. He's respected. He's involved in his community. He, I assume he didn't have to build a synagogue for the Jews, but he did. And if we look later on in the story, even Jesus was impressed with this man. All right, so as we measure him, this guy is impressive. He's incredible. If, if I was asking you to describe my children someday, and you described my children with these words when they're grown, that, that, that makes me a happy dad, right? I'm not so worried if, if I'm described this way, but man, if my kids are described that way when they're grown, those are things I want my kids to be named, right? I want them to impress Jesus. How awesome would that be? All right, so let's look in Second Corinthians chapter 10. We'll see what Paul says about this. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Okay, so we've said this guy is awesome because measuring him against everybody else, he stands way above, and rightfully so. But Paul says this isn't wise. We all do this, right? We, this is completely natural. My kids do this. Weston, my son, is three years old. The other day, you know, he got a bath, and he's out. What's, what's up with kids wanting to run, scream naked? Like, they just you get out of the bath, and you just got to run the house. You know, just going crazy. I don't know why. Well, I'm getting his pajamas ready. It's almost bedtime, and I pull out what I used to call long johns, uh, thermal pajamas—I don't know if you know what those are—I pull them out and I say, "Hey, buddy, what about these? These look nice and warm." He's like, "No, not those." I'm like, what's wrong with those? They look weird. It's like you're three, you're wearing them. <laughs> I don't care if they look weird. I don't want to look weird. I was like, "What do you mean you don't want to look weird?" I mean, I—I I have two guesses in his, his older sisters who told him his pants were weird, but. <laughs> But he's already at the age of three recognizing that these pants compared to my other ones make me compared to somebody else look weird, right? So, so we, we, do, we just do it naturally. It, it's not like, you know, this is some strange thing and how in the world did you get there? This is natural. We compare ourselves among ourselves. And, and Paul says that's just not a wise thing to do. So we've men- measured the centurion Point B, how do I measure myself? How do you measure yourself? It's the same way, right? When, when I was in high school, I, I, well, I say I played football. I played a few plays of football. I practiced football a lot um, with the team. I just wasn't that great. I was average size, average strength, average ability. In school, I was average intellect. I worked really, really hard for straight B's. It was awesome. I would put them on the fridge. Look at that. You know, It's not a C. I worked really hard. I just fell right in the middle of everything all the time. I measured myself as unworthy, though. Because I was always looking at my little brother who didn't study and got straight A's. Man, I wish I was that smart. Or I was looking at my teammates who could knock anybody flat without trying, and I would just bounce off of people because I was little, or average-sized. <laughs> so, so my measurement of myself was unworthy. We measured the centurion as worthy. I don't know if I skipped the blank. But how I measured myself was unworthy. I was the third of four boys. I kind of fell right in the middle, if there's a middle of four. So my assess- assessment of myself was was Unworthy. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying these things so that you'll feel sorry for me. This is not my public Facebook post. <laughs> oh, I'm so lame. And <sighs> I'm just not as cool as everybody else. And, you know, I, I'm not asking for pity. I'm not asking for attention. You know, I've got, I've got the people that I've not follow anymore because every post is, oh, woe is me. And then everybody else posts on there and says, you know, you're really good. You're really nice. We like you. You know, you too are special and important, right? I, I'm not looking for any of that, right? What <laughs> I measured myself, and maybe you guys are the same way. Maybe you measure yourself against everybody else, and you say, unworthy. I just don't measure up. I'm just not as good as anybody else. If I excelled at anything, I was the best at being average yes. What an accomplishment, right? I mean, that's what we all shoot for. Just fly right through the middle, average, nobody noticed me. Yes, unworthy. That's how I saw myself, was unworthy. If, and and I'm, you know, I'm getting better. It doesn't matter. I get it. Um, If I asked somebody, or if somebody asked you to describe me, if you know me, you know, maybe you would say, shiny. <laughs> maybe you would say, he's a nice guy. I, I hope you say I'm a nice guy. You know, he's, all our pastors are really nice, right? Jeff lets me borrow his books and bother him all the time, and, he, and he's nice about it. He's always polite with me. I mean, he's not as nice as Irv. I mean, come on. <laughs> right? Irv, the standard of all pastoral niceness. (laughs) Sorry, Irv, I'm picking on you. I mean, who's nicer than Irv? Probably Mrs. Irv, right? And the only one that has a chance of beating her is probably their son. So, I mean, come on. Craig, am I as nice as Craig? Craig's over there watching your kids. You can't say he's not nice. I mean, that's pretty stinking nice. And Rich has got the hugs, man. When I first started this summer, I count, I didn't have a lot to do. You know, Jeff, <laughs> Jeff was out of the country, and so I counted 13 consecutive days where I got a hug from Rich. It was awesome. It was really nice. I felt, it felt nice, because he's a nice guy. So 13, that means there was a Saturday in there where there wasn't a work day or Sunday that somehow I found Rich and he gave me a hug. Most of those days I got like three, right? He'd come into the office, give me a hug, we'd talk a minute, and he'd give me another hug and then leave. And then if I saw him in the hallway, I was like, <laughs> you know, he's gonna give me another hug. He's a nice guy. And, it, and then one time he's, you know, he hugged me, there's a group of people, and then he's like, squeezing my shoulder, and, and I'm like, why is that dude still touching me? (laughs) So so clearly, I've just picked on Rich in front of all of you. I am am below Jeff. (laughs) The scale is the Brocker to Irv scale of of pastoral niceness. So now we know. Why am I being so ridiculous? It's, It's because we compare ourselves among ourselves to find out where we fit and who we are and how we measure up. Again, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says, "We dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves by measure, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise." So whether you're thinking you're pretty awesome like the centurion or or maybe you're like me that you kind of beat yourself up or maybe you're like the Pharisees, and you're constantly saying, I'm not that bad. I, I know that I've faked it for a while, but you know I haven't failed like he's failed, or like she's failed, or I, re- I read my Bible every day. Maybe you're like that. That's the other side of the same coin, right? So whether we see ourselves as, as someone else, or someone else as worthy or not worthy, is because we're looking at the wrong standard. Let's look at the centurion one more time. The centurion, we've said he's, he's a stud. We've said he's worthy. How did the centurion measure himself? Let's look again in verse 6 of Luke chapter 7. When Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, to Jesus, saying unto him, Lord, Trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. He says, I am not worthy for you to come to my house, and I wasn't worthy to come to you. His assessment of himself is not that out of self pity and comparison to others. Who is he comparing to? Who is he not worthy of? We say he's worthy. The Jews said he's worthy. He says, I'm unworthy. He was looking at Jesus. He heard stories of a man who had the power over the very health of the people of that area. He heard stories of a man that spoke with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees and and that just pretended to be in charge, right? This guy stood up and spoke the words of God as God, and it boomed with authority. He saw himself as unworthy because he was. So that brings us to point two. He's measuring himself up to Jesus. How do you measure up to Jesus? We think of the greatest apostle, maybe the greatest Christian, by our standards. Again, we're measuring. That's okay. We're probably right on this one. The Apostle Paul. How, how did Apostle Paul put this? Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, or in his abilities, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, he might trust in his flesh I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. If you're a Pharisee and you're measuring skills and things that they wanted to have, Paul had them all. He was top shelf Pharisee. Verse 7, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Paul's pedigree was incredible. What a Pharisee measured as important, Paul said when he saw Christ, it's all loss. None of it has value any longer. Not one thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, there's only one who gets credit for changing lives. There's only one who gets credit for transforming eternities. The best that we bring to the table doesn't help. He gets all the credit. That's how Paul saw it. And later in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, though he could have. Right? Declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of spirit and power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's how Paul saw it all. Paul, the best of the best, he followed Christ like none of us have. We look to him, we follow him as he followed Christ. He was an incredible example, rightfully so. Let's look at verse 8 again in Luke chapter 7. For I also am a man set under authority. Back to verse 7. Wherefore neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. This guy understands the power of the word of God, doesn't he? Verse 8. For I also am a man set under authority. Having under me soldiers, I say unto one, go, and he goeth. To another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. Some very distinct, specific examples, right? <laughs> very bland, generic examples, actually. All right, so, so how do you see his authority? The centurion looks and he sees the authority of the word of God. He sees the authority Jesus had in the words that he said, that he spoke. Why do you think the centurion gave us such authority Bland, non-specific examples. Probably because God knows that if he listed some requirements, we'd probably take those and turn them into legalistic standards and follow those. Right? We'd probably say, oh, you know, this is how we measure. I, I got it. Okay, we don't measure by these things. We measure by these three examples of what the centurion tells his guys to do. It's not about a standard legalistic standard. It's about seeing Jesus rather than measuring ourselves. You see, Jesus has the power to speak creation into existence. His words are inspired and and last for all eternity. His story has the power to save your soul for eternity. A story. Now, I've read a lot of stories, well, I don't read a lot. I've read a lot of stories as a kid I've read some things as an adult. I look at the memes on Facebook, and some of them are really inspiring, right? Men's words can inspire you to do great things. They can. There are great writers and artists out there that can challenge us and inspire us to do great things. There's only one story that changes eternity. There's only one. Only one story has the power to give you eternal life. That's Jesus' story. Let's keep that in perspective. As, as we look in John chapter 5, verse 16, it says, And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Right? He has that authority. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loves the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater things than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so, the son quickeneth whom he will. That word quickeneth means to make alive, right? I think of Nestle quick. This isn't a very good example, but it helps me remember it, right? Nestle's chocolate quick makes milk come alive, right? It makes it better. It, just, it helps me remember. It's dumb, I know. For the father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the son. Jesus has all judgment. That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given the Son to have life in himself. And hath given him authority to execute judgment. Right? Jesus Christ has authority over life. Temporary life that we see and know here and now, but he has authority over eternal life. He has the final say. God, the Father, has given him judgment. We answer to him. He's the one I want to impress, right? I need to be nicer, right? I, I need to move up the scale of pastoral niceness, but, but the one I need to impress is Jesus Christ. A while ago, we looked at Mark chapter one. Let's look again. Mark chapter one, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway, right away, on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes who feigned authority. One of my all-time favorite verses, Revelation 4.11, thou art worthy. Who's worthy? Not us. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. I was so excited that we sang that song, Wayne. Good job. For thou hast created all things, for thy pleasure they are and were created. He's worthy. Revelation 5, verses 12 and 13. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under heaven, and such as are in in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Who sits on the throne? The king sits on the throne. Why does the king sit on a throne? Because he's above his subjects, right? There's no throne higher than the throne in heaven. There's no king higher than the king of kings. This is who the centurion was looking at. All right, so we've looked at what's impressed us, what impresses us, and somehow, some way, the centurion manages to impress Jesus, the king of kings. So how do you impress Jesus? Let's read verse nine. In Luke chapter seven. When Jesus heard these things, remember these things are the the centurion says, "I, I too am under, you know, set under fate or under authority. I tell my soldiers to go and to come, and they do that. And I tell my servant to do whatever it is he told him to do. It doesn't matter, he does it. It doesn't matter what he tells him. Verse nine, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. You know what impresses Jesus is faith. What impresses God is when he tells us to do something, and we do it because we believe that he's right. So what what exactly is faith? Hebrews 11.1, we say it this way, all the time around here. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the opposite of sight. If I tell you something is true and you're looking at it and know it to be true, you don't have faith, have to have faith to believe that. You just do because you saw it. When I was in Adventure Zone, we, we used to do this thing to, to teach the kids what faith is. We would, we would have them come up front. Some of you guys, I'm old enough now that you will remember this, but we'd have them come up and say, okay, turn around, put your arms out, and when I say fall over, you fall over, and I'll catch you. See if you have faith that I'll, that I'll catch you. And, you know, some of them would, would, would go like this and look at you, and then, you know, they would kind of fall back. They didn't really believe I was going to catch them. I don't know why. I never dropped anybody. <laughs> so then we'd say, okay, anybody else, and, and they'd raise their hand, and we'd say, okay, come on up. OK, this time, I want you to close your eyes. Put your arms out. And when I say so, you just fall backwards, and I'll catch you. And so we'd do that, and it was fun. And everybody wanted to turn. And, and eventually, you know, everybody believed that I was going to catch them, because I didn't drop anybody. right? I wasn't dropping kids. So OK, let's, let's up the challenge a little bit here. Let's get a chair. all right? So we get a chair, and we have the kids stand up on the chair and I would scare them because I would catch them down here, right? Because I, I didn't drop them, I promise. Did I drop anybody? You guys remember? I don't think so. And we would say, okay, you get up there, you close your eyes, you put your arms out, and I'm not going to tell you when to go. You just have to believe that I'm ready to catch you whenever you fall. You have to have faith, whether you've seen it or not before, you have to have faith that I'm going to catch you whenever you fall, because we can't wait for him to say fall all the time. Sometimes we just fall, right? So, so we always work that angle for faith, to describe what faith is. If I told you right now, in a half hour, your house is going to burn to the ground. There's nothing you can do to stop it. If you had faith in my word, you wouldn't be sitting here right now, right? You would be heading home and gathering up your pictures and your hard drives, and everything else that has all your important information on it to get it out of there. If you had faith in, I I hope nobody's house is going to burn out in a half hour. If you had faith in my word, though, if I told you that, you would take action. See, faith is just like love. It's not a feeling. It's not just a feeling. It's a feeling that forces action. God so loved the world that he gave. He loved us so much that he gave, he did something. Faith requires you to do something. It says in James, or here, let's, let's go to Hebrews eleven six. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's rewarder of them that diligently seek him. All right, it says it's impossible to please him. You want to impress Jesus? This is how you impress Jesus. You tell him that you believe what he says, and then you go do it, right? You don't fake it like I was faking it for all that time. You want to get healthy again? If you're in that boat, then, then you believe what he says and you do it. You obey, right? Second Corinthians 10, 18. I've got a couple more verses. So let's skip ahead here. 2 Corinthians 10, 18 says, For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. The centurion could have mentioned the synagogue that he built, right? He could have said, Hey, Jesus, you know, I heard you were here before, and and I know you like to teach in that nice synagogue. You know, I built that. That that was me. I did that. And you know, those Jews that, that you like to preach to, I'm kind of their boss. I, I kind of tell them what to do, and they, they do it. Or he could have said, you know, you know that battle a couple weeks back? Yeah, I was on the front lines, man. I kicked some butt. Still alive to, to tell about it. Right? He, he could have listed his qualifications. He could have gone and said, I'm worthy because of the things that I've done. Right? He didn't do that. He saw who Jesus was. He understood Jesus' power. And he said, you say it's true, I believe it. You have the power to heal, I believe it. You don't have to come to my house, I'm not worthy. You don't have to touch my servant. You say, and it's done. You have that power. I have faith that you can do it. Whatever timing you say, whatever circumstance, it's all in your hands. And I put it there and I trust that, that you can do that. That's what amazed Jesus. That was the impressive faith. Jesus saw faith. Like he saw the the Jewish men put their friend down through the rooftop and said it was because of their faith that the man was healed. There was a woman that touched his garment. And she was healed. He said, your faith has healed you. But he hadn't seen so great faith to where the guy just said, hey, whatever you say goes. You clearly have power over life itself. So let's read verse 10. Let's see how this wraps up. And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. I started off by, by talking about how I was sick. I was a Christian, but I didn't have a real close relationship with Christ. My relationship was unhealthy at best. And maybe that's where you find yourself today. Do you, do you want to be like this servant that, that was made whole again? That's walking closely, that, that's got your own relationship. You're not dependent upon how somebody else is doing. If they're here, if they're not, if they're following God here or elsewhere and you just don't know it. That's what I want. That's what I wanted. <laughs> the answer certainly is not to compare ourselves to others and keep fooling ourselves and others because that's, that's who we're fooling, right? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. We're, we're really tricky. We're, really con- we're so convincing in our lies that, that we believe ourselves. We convince ourselves because our hearts are so deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You can't even know sometimes your own heart. I, the Lord, search the heart. It says in verse 10, I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. The only one who always sees the truth about us is God. He's he's not fooled by our lies. And he says, give us according to the fruit of our doings. You really, really don't want the outcome of lying to yourself. But that's what you'll get. The only way we see is by going to the, what James tells us is the mirror of the Word of God. The only way you're going to see who you actually are and see through your own baloney, we'll just call it that, if you're, you're going to see through your own lies, the only way you're going to do it is ask God to show you. And go to his Word and let him show you the truth about you and be able to take it, because sometimes it hurts. right? That saying the truth hurts, it really hurts When it's not you comparing you to somebody else. When it's God saying, hey, bud, you need to know this about yourself. You got to know. You're not going to get healthy unless you know this is who you are and you need me to change that. So maybe you're here today and you realize that you're sick for a different reason. Maybe you don't even know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you, like the rest of us, have a sickness, it's called sin. It's terminal. Sin has separated us from God. Every one of us have it. <clears throat> We're born with it. The only way to get rid of it is, is to depend on Christ to do it. Isaiah 64 6 says, But we all are as an unclean thing. All right, so we've compared ourselves, we've measured ourselves. Isaiah is going to confirm it for us here. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The best that you can do, your righteousness, is a filthy rag. It's not even good enough to clean up your own mess, man. The best that you can muster. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like wind have taken us away. He also knows that our sins have separated us from him, as it's stated in Romans 6.23. We've all fallen short. We've fallen short of his perfect standard. Here's the best part. Romans 5.8. This is incredible. But God commendeth his love toward us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He knew we were worth We were worthless. He knew the best that we could muster wouldn't help. He knew that our sins have separated us and condemned us to hell. But in knowing that, he still died. He still gave everything. He came to this earth, earth, gave up his throne in heaven for a time, suffered and died for our sins. He paid the penalty. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have that sickness called sin. That terminal sickness. Romans 10, 9 and 10 shows us how that you can change that today. How that Christ can change that for you today. Romans 10, verse 9 says, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. With the heart, man believeth unto righteousness; and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, was buried, rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death, now holds the keys to your eternal life? It says right there. You make Him the Lord of your life by believing that and confessing that He's Lord. He wipes it all away. He forgives us for those sins, and he says that we then are seated with him in eternity. An incredible promise. And then like me, again, on the other side, maybe maybe you're more like me. You've already done that. You've given your life to Christ. But man, you're just more worried about what people think than what people or what God knows. We need to focus on having that close, right relationship with him. Let's go ahead and bow our heads. And that before we pray, this is your opportunity. This is your chance to